Welcome to Mavericks with Marty. I'm Marty Kodas, your host, and today I have in my office former U.S. Congressman Mark Walker, who is now in the U.S. Senate race in North Carolina. These U.S. Senate races are unbelievably expensive, and there's so much campaign pressure out there from places like dark money, where you don't know where the money's coming from, but it's influencing these campaigns. We talk about the wheeling and dealing that goes on in politics and how Mark was recently offered a deal and how he stood up to that and didn't take it. And, you know, that's what makes him a true maverick is with unbelievable pressure on him from a variety of different sources, he pushes back and can't be bought. As late as last week, I was offered a deal to step down from the race. All I had to do was go on the stage and endorse Mr. Bud as the best candidate. If so, I would be heaped praise. I would have kind of a path forward politically and some of that. And I just said, I'm not going to do that. To go out there and tell the people, many of them who have worked hard and trusted me to do the right thing for six years in the U.S. House, I'm not going to go out there and say something that I don't believe in my heart. We talk about the importance of the fourth estate, the press, and how it can hold government accountable or how it can be fake news. Our local indie paper trying to get that canceled. Yeah, they were very intentional in trying to shut him down because they ran off a bunch of names. He's this, he's that, so therefore he shouldn't be allowed to speak. But if you look at this even in a larger context, Marty, you're exactly right. Take for the Hunter Biden laptop situation. The press, even big Social media and big tech censored people who said, hey, Hunter Biden is doing this and his dad's involved here. And now we're finding out two years later, this that it was exactly what we thought it was. This guy was corrupt, working out deals based on relationship that his father had. We're just now beginning to peel back the layers. But it was the press who shut it down, who said there's nothing to see here, who wouldn't report it right in the middle of a presidential campaign. That's why they have so much power. And President Trump was so right to call these guys out for the fake news artists that they are. We talk about the need for politicians to show up for debates and be accountable to voters. It bothers me a bit when people don't show up for debates because it feels like they don't need to answer to the people of the state or be challenged on the fly that they're just running ads and kind of outspending people. You know, you're putting out this curated message. Is going out, answering the questions, and allowing yourself to be put on the stage with other candidates to be vetted. I can't imagine Donald Trump saying, yeah, I'm not going to debate. He wanted to be on that stage, and it's the reason that he was elected president is because he showed a warrior mentality. He showed strength to get out there and talk about some of these issues. And I think people have become used to that accessible politician that is unafraid to speak their mind. And when you feel like someone's just reading from a teleprompter or hiding behind an ad, it just, it doesn't feel as genuine. We talk about what it takes to be a maverick and the importance of independent thought. If you look at throughout our history, it is the mavericks who made history. It's the ones not just trying to buck the system, but just to say, you know what? We don't have to be conformist here. And that's really not that you do it just because of that reason, but it takes courage to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to accept that deal because there's usually a price to pay if you don't. So welcome to another episode of Mavericks with Marty. And today I have a special guest. I have former Congressman 
Mark Walker uh, and current uh, candidate for U.S. Senate for North Carolina. Uh, thanks, Mark, for joining me today. Uh, Marty, it's my privilege. Glad to be here on Mavericks. And I will think uh, probably hundreds of studios I have been in. This is probably the most comfortable studio that I have ever done any kind of interview or podcast in. So thanks for the invite. It's it's fun in here. We have the uh, the coffee in the morning. We've got the artwork, and uh, we're still wor- it's still a work in progress, but it's uh, it's getting there. But the chairs do make a difference, and the and the mic surely do as well. It makes us all sound better and feel better. So it puts us in the right mood. I think I think it does. Yeah, important topics. So it's good to have the environment to be able to discuss some of these issues. Yeah. So it probably feels a little bit better than. A bus seat, and you have spent a lot of time on bus seats for the uh, for the last uh, uh, eighteen months, I guess. Uh, yeah, traveling around. Yeah, I, I think it's been close to that, uh, almost a year and a half, I, I guess, here in the summer. But, but yeah, but you know what, Marty, I, I I like it. I enjoy being out there among the people. You know, I guess as a pastor for sixteen years. It's just natural to be out there because here's the thing. If you get stuck in D.C., you you start to think kind of one directional. So it's always good to hear from the people that you're representing. Just people literally who two years ago weren't even in the political process but are starting to understand what's at stake, the erosion of our liberty. And to see these folks and their families who just wanted to work hard and go to church and, and really raise their family, to see them engaging now actually is pretty encouraging thing. Absolutely. You know, and, and touching on that, I think a lot of people are feeling like their faith is under attack from D.C. these days. And so there's this feeling or their whole way of life is under attack. And so what what are you hearing on the uh, campaign trail? What are some of the big issues that are, that are resonating with people? Well, I think you just kind of touched on one. They're worried about mandates and really the bureaucratic control that comes out of Washington, D.C., whether it's in the education arena, where it's in the healthcare, you know, some of the mask mandates on children, those kinds of things have been really hot topics as I've traveled throughout the state. Uh, and people are, frankly, they're getting fed up. Uh, even with the, this whole uh, Joe Biden build back better agenda, if you look at it, a lot of it is basically taking control from states and local communities and transferring it to the overreaching arm of the bureaucratic federal government. And that's where I think people are growing more and more concerned. Like, where, where's where's the where's the bottom in all this? How much do we surrender before Washington D.C. is going to be satisfied when it comes to our personal liberty? I agree. You know, I think the last couple of years have really shown how government can reach into your life. Sometimes they're there to help, but a lot of times it feels like significant overreach. And during COVID, I think people felt very locked down. Um, you know, there was government help out there, which was good for businesses that were impacted, but there was also a lot of uh, local government regulations, state government and federal government reaching out, getting involved in your lives. And then we've seen, you know, we had COVID, then we had BLM hitting in a significant way. Uh, We've had CRT hitting in a significant way. We've had a lot of cancel culture hitting in a significant way. So all of that over the last couple of years has been a whole host of issues. Yeah. Uh, not to mention what's going on in the, the overall world today with Ukraine no, it, and China. It, it, it really, Marty, you're exactly right. And if you think about it, even studies are showing us now, not that you had to see it on paper, 
But many of the communities that were most negatively impacted, even by some of these shutdown rules, were were impoverished communities, were communities of color that didn't have the same access. And and it was like the, the federal government said, look, our our job is to here to help you, but you, you, some of these students missed an entire year, year and a half of education, of schooling, and are trying to play catch up, not to even talk about the psychological trauma that's impacted some of the families from this shutdown time that we had. I'm not saying, look, I'm, I'm completely against all the CDC recommendations, but when it became more political than based in science, even though the left was saying it was based in science, I think that became a problem for many Americans, and I think it's one of the reasons that you're seeing such low approval numbers on this Biden-Kamala Harris administration, whether it's uh, health care, whether it's economy, whether it's handing domestic or foreign policy. And I think we're at a place right now where a lot of people are waking up and saying, you know what, this is not what our country should be like, and they're pushing back, and I applaud them for it. Absolutely. You know, it's you've been a real maverick in D.C., and your whole start into the political process was – was not the normal path. A lot of people, when they're looking to run for Congress, have come through other elected office, and you came straight from the ministry into uh, politics right out of the gate. And it, it surprised a lot of us. And that's actually how we met was uh, at the time you were running, you were the outsider outside of the normal politics. And I had a, a lot of different uh, friends that were running at that time, including Phil Berger Jr., who's now on the North Carolina Supreme Court. But uh, we met then, and uh, I got to say, I was impressed with you uh, back then as well, just your genuineness and your your faith that was on display as well uh, really stood out to me. Well, Marty, thank you. I, I appreciate that. You know, I think whatever entity or environment, I think authenticity uh, is very important because people – at some point they get past the slick campaign ads. And one of the things that I really learned pretty quickly when I stepped away from ministry, December 31st of 2013 and ran in 2014, you know, I had all my talking points and I was learning all the policy positions. But after about two or three weeks, I realized people just want to know what's in your heart. Can they trust you? When you're faced with the heated opposition or you're putting in an environment of this adverse conditions, Will you fold or will you be willing to stand in the gap? And I just began to get away from the talking points and just talking about real life issues and, and how we are to be able to not only handle ourselves here, but in D.C. or whatever it might be. And, and I think that's what gravitated looking back to see record turnouts back there in 2014. And look, I didn't mean to start out as a maverick. I just said, look, I'm not going to take any D.C. dark. I'm going to win the Republican nomination without taking any D.C. dark money. And we were able to do it. But one of the things that I found out, and look, it was probably based more on ignorance than integrity looking back. But once I got to Washington, D.C., nobody showed up knocking on my door expecting anything in return. And I stumbled across that, that if you're going to be effective in D.C., you can't be bought before you ever get there. And that's how we became the first freshman in congressional history to be elected by my colleagues to chair the largest caucus in Congress, uh, formerly chaired by Jim Jordan, Mike Pence, and some of the things that we were able to do, I was able to, in fact, I, I have, I'm proud of the title, I'm the highest rated conservative ever to serve in the top four of leadership positions in the GOP U.S. House. But you have to be a maverick, to, to your point there, to not follow the traditional system because everybody thinks, well, who do I need to align with? And I, I get some of that's important. But once you sell that voting card, probably the most expensive item in D.C., 
they don't ever give it back. And that's why it's very important if you have are blessed with such an opportunity to serve in a political arena, you have to remember who sent you there. And I think it's very important. I, I agree. I think, you know, being independent in politics is very challenging because there's a lot of pressure from other people that you're working with. And it's kind of this uh, group pressure on you to vote a certain way, to think a certain way. If someone has a a sponsor out there, corporate uh, lobbyist that's trying to convince them of something, they're bringing that person in or wanting to put pressure on you as well. So there's, so, and you've got just so many points of pressure and then trying to find that right path on your own and make decisions that, that you feel are the right decision for the people of the state of North Carolina is is super challenging. It, it, it is because, and you just touched on this, Marty, and you're exactly right, spot on on this point, is because there's no path to do that. There's a couple of tracks you're supposed to fit in and run on and just nod and be the yes man or yes woman. And if you try to be that independent agent, what happens is you have to go out and carve your own way. You have, And that impacts your fundraising. It impacts you because all these systems are kind of built in. Like you're built in cabinets, right? If you want to customize your own or something like that, then you've got to go out there and do the hard work and kind of really build it from scratch. And that's very challenging. But along the way, if you can maintain that independence, I am convinced. I've seen it in D.C. It's even happened from a personal testimony. It allows you to hit the ground running and to be able to have the maximum impact for the people that you represent. And it feels like it's a relatively recent phenomena that you get people that aren't lifelong politicians in DC on both sides of the political aisle. It seems like we're seeing more people come up from varied backgrounds and the people embracing that instead of having to go through the pecking order and then get to a certain level. And then, you know, there's this natural progression to get to a run for Congress or, or Senator. Mm -hmm. And so you've, you've really broken through that and, and several people have out there now, but how does that work then when you, when you're there and you're dealing with these or just in just regular politics around, you know, how, how are you dealing with the lifelong politicians and you're, you're coming up new? Great question, Marty. It's one of the reasons that I believe in term limits uh, because what happens even with well-intended people and I've seen it on both sides of the aisle. Once you're there 25, 30, 35 years, in some cases, you just kind of gravitate to the back row, push whatever button you're supposed to push by leadership. And you're on some good committee. They're going to take care of you. They're going to do both, most of your fundraising because they know how you'll vote. That's not what our founding fathers intended, in my opinion. And I think one of the reasons that you can, one of the ways that you can push back on it is to be able to implement term limits. I've often thought 12 years that's two Senate terms and six House terms is plenty. If you can't get what you promised that you would do for the people you're representing in 12 years, I'm not sure that you can do it in 30 to 40 years. And I think that's a that's a huge factor uh, to be able to curb some of it because the special interests did not have that kind of, uh, our founding fathers didn't envision to have that kind of special interest in the hooks there. And I think that's one of the reasons that I've tried to get that legislation unsuccessfully to the House floor but I think that's one of the stop gaps that can be utilized to be able to limit some of that uh, behavior as far as not representing the people and forgetting about who sent you there to begin with. Absolutely. So let's, let's talk about fundraising because sure. that is, you know, there's so much money that is being spent on these races out there. 
And you have some special interest groups. You also just have large fundraising machines out there that are, we're talking about in in this race overall, this will be a couple hundred million dollars probably by the time it goes through the the fall. Oh, absolutely. In fact, it's projected to be the most expensive U.S. Senate race in history. And we think $200 million would simply, that's just how much Chuck Schumer and the guys on the left will spend uh, in this race and depending on how much Republicans, but yeah, you, we go into this knowing that, that the left will outspend. And a lot of it is the fact the majority of it is money coming in from New York and California to influence these elections. But Republicans aren't scot-free on this either. One of the candidates here has uh, been earmarked $14 million of dark money. It's the most in U S Senate primary history on either side of the aisle to have that much money. And people say, what is D.C. dark money? Well, here's here's what dark money is about. It's not just about PACs. There's some PACs that do different works, some that do good work, right, to make sure that people are paying attention. But D.C. dark money is coming from people who do not have to disclose the names of people that are supporting that particular special interest group. Uh, so in this case, uh, for example, Club for Growth, uh, those donors contributing that, they do not have to disclose that uh, information. I just think once you go to that route, once you take $14 million or have $14 million spent on you, does that compromise you when, for example, there was a farm bill where President Trump, Chrissy Noman, Ron DeSantis, and I supported it, uh, but, and I'll, I'm, I'll be bold here, but Mr. Bud had to vote against it because this same super PAC that is designating $14 million for him called us both and said, you got to vote against this bill. I said, I'm not voting against it. We've, we've stretched this thing. We've made it most the conservative, but the, but for our farmers here, we are looking at legislation that only reauthorizes it every five years. I'm not going to leave them hanging high and dry. That's when it becomes a problem when you are beholden or your allegiance goes more to a DC special interest group, as opposed to the people that you've promised that you would represent. I think that's a critical point. You know, we don't want our senators being bought by New York or California or Texas money even, where their allegiance is to an effort maybe for some other state or other part of the country where maybe they have more uh, priorities at that time. And, you know, prioritizing North Carolinians is, is tough to do when you're talking about that kind of money coming in from all other places. And how do you remain loyal to North Carolinians when you're you're effectively bought and paid for by outside interest? Well, it's one of the reasons that we've not taken a single dollar of this particular kind of dark money, uh, the special interest money. And, and does it uh, prohibit us from running as many ads or, or getting covered up in some of the other uh, the promos from other candidates? It does. But it certainly allows me to sleep better at night knowing that I've never gotten to the place where I was willing to walk away from what I think is what we should be doing. And that's running a campaign that's uh, on the backs of the people who actually live in this state. And I think representing them. And I think that's one of the reasons that we've had uh, looking at some of the polling, uh, we have the lowest unfavorable rating of anybody in this race. And I think part of it goes back to the authenticity, but I think it's also people know that we're running a campaign based on the wishes and based on the funding, even at grassroots five, 10 bucks and 50 bucks at a time from the people who live in this state. And I think that's something that we're going to be very proud of. Absolutely. You know, transitioning to another difficult topic out there. So president Trump, former president Trump 
has wielded an awful lot of influence yes. in kind of a king-making role uh, since uh, he's been out of office. And, you know, he's, he's picking winners and losers sometimes in these races, or, or he's, he's wanting to pick to, winners yes, and losers. Right. And, you know, going back to North Carolina, there was a discussion that uh, Laura Trump was going yeah. to potentially going to be in this race. I'm curious, you know, what has that whole process been like? And, you know, you jumped in very early on uh, into the race and announced early on, but there were rumors of a lot of other candidates. So why do you think some of the other ones did or didn't enter the race? And what has been the, the President Trump factor? Well, you know, it's interesting. The story actually starts in 2019, December 2019. The districts were changed here. And what happened with that, I had about 55% of the constituents that I currently represented uh, that got moved over to another district. So I had th- I had 55%, Mr. Bud had 34%. But I, uh, as the senior member there in Washington, D.C., I reached out to Mr. Bud and actually went over to his office in the Cannon Building. And I sat down with him. I said, Ted, I said, I don't think it's best that we run against each other, but so here's what we'll do. Even though I have more constituents in this new district and I have all the sheriffs to endorse us, I felt like I had a pretty strong advantage and made the case. I don't think he disagreed with that. But I said, here's the thing. Let's not run against each other. I've already been talking about running about running for the retiring Richard Burr. Uh, so you stay in the U.S. House and I'll run for the U.S. Senate, thinking that we, you know, as of good faith, we would do that. So when I got out there and then three months later, or four months later after I announced he came into the race, I was a little surprised by it. doesn't mean that he did anything illegal or wrong. I just thought we had kind of worked that to try to not get where two conservatives were kind of running against each other, if you will. But the, And then then, the, then there was talk about uh, Lara Trump moving here from New York and running from as well. None of that ever deterred me because I was committed to it, and uh, to this day we're undeterred by it. Uh, no matter who gets what money or who, who which name – uh, and then the former governor, uh, Pat McCroy, decides to get into the race uh, as well. So then it became really intense. I think uh, 14 different people filed, but only three of us have been invited to uh, – well, there's been a fourth one divided, invited to the first debate. Uh, but with the debates coming up, I think it's going to be myself, uh, Pat McCroy, and Ted Budd uh, that are invited to be able to hash out these issues. But there's – as you know, Marty, you've, you've, you've been paying attention to the political arena for some time – there's always kinds of things that are going on behind the scenes and wheeling and dealing. Uh, but I, I still think that if you look at this, we're, we are by far the best candidate. We, we are actually, a lot of people don't even know this. We're actually rated the number one America first pro Trump policy candidate of all the candidates. We're the highest rated conservative to ever serve in the top four leader positions, uh, positions in the U S house last member to get a balanced budget. I won't go down and give you this, the, the talking points, but we have a strong record, and because of that, with our ability to reach into communities of color and the relationships in the minority communities to talk about our message of hope and opportunity and individualism, I think it puts us in a good place to be able to discuss the record. Now, Pat McCroy and I have been willing to show up for the debates. We hope that Mr. Bud's handlers will allow him to come and talk about these issues because I think it's very important that if you're running for such a position as the United States Senate— you should be willing to go out and answer these questions that are important to the people of North Carolina. I think that's part of the accountability. And it, you know, kind of bothers me a bit when people don't show up for debates because it feels like they don't 
need to answer to the people of the state or be challenged on the fly that they're just running ads uh, and kind of outspending people. And that that's the, you know, you're putting out this curated message. In politics recently, you've seen a lot more thinking on your feet. Uh, debates that are where people aren't pulling their punches yes. and you've had a lot of spirited debate, which I think is good, yep. but to not participate in it at all, I think is just a little bit insulting to the, to the common voters because they want to hear from their candidates. They want to know that they're accountable to them. They want to know that their candidate can answer questions because when you get to DC, you're going to have to have these conversations anyway. No, and I th- I think you just touched on this perfectly. Uh, you know, it's political hand-to-hand combat. You have to be able – it's not only the issues that you believe in, but how do you defend those issues, Marty, is really important now, specifically with the envelope of all the news cycles. How do you articulate – and it's not just preaching to the choir, but one of the things that I've been driven and probably the basis of why I'm running for the U.S. Senate – how is it that I take what I believe and take it to new places and new communities? Because ultimately, if I feel like that we've got the best message in this conservative ideology, why wouldn't I want to share it with other people, with other places? And if you do not have the ability or the capacity to be able to do that, it basically says you're just going there to be a rubber stamp for what somebody else tells you to do. And I think it's very important. I love the word that you talked about, accountability. Absolutely. At one of the the, the elementary things that should that you should be doing is going out, answering the questions, and allowing yourself to be put on the stage with other candidates to be vetted. I can't imagine Donald Trump saying, yeah, I'm not going to debate. He wanted to be on that stage, and that's the reason that he, uh, that he was elected president is because he showed a warrior mentality. He showed strength to get out there and talk about some of these issues. Yeah, and, and I think people have become used to that accessible – politician that is unafraid to speak their mind and when you feel like someone's just reading from a teleprompter or hiding behind an ad it just it doesn't feel as genuine no but we have a lot of people uh i think sometimes specifically in the republican base see here's what happens marty these politicians they learn the vernacular they learn the expressions to kind of get you emotionally engaged but is there any substance behind that uh, what will they do? And one of the best ways that you're able to discover how they handle themselves is simply answering the questions that are important to the voters of North Carolina. I hope Mr. Bud uh, and his people will have a change of heart. Uh, in fact, we've got uh, three debates coming up, WRAL, uh, statewide on Spectrum, and Next Star is the last one that's uh, simulcast on on our TV television networks throughout the state. I think it's important, and I think there'll continue to be backlash Uh, for those who choose not to participate in these debates. You know, transitioning to another figure that is uh, well-spoken and outspoken, Ben Shapiro is going to be in Greensboro. And there's been a lot of controversy about that. There's a lot of um, effort by liberals to silence the right and not let someone speak. And I just, I don't understand that. I wish we could go back to more of a, reason discussion where you're listening to other ideas if you don't agree with them and you don't want to hear them then don't show up but to try and prevent someone from being able to speak and uh, using the cancel culture to stop them is really that's the thing i worry about most in this country right now is just this 
cancel culture, lack of free speech, trying to shut people down, trying to, you know, uh, coerce them into speaking or saying things a certain way. Yeah. Listen, one of the reasons that America has been the exceptional country that we have been is, is that First Amendment. To be able to peaceably assemble, to speak and to say whatever it is that you believe. And the founding fathers in their genius, that was the friction to create the intellectual or critical thinking that would produce ultimately the best result for the American people. And when you stifle or you limit or you try to counsel, uh, in this case, Ben Shapiro, what you're doing is you're basically saying that I'm not applauding the First Amendment. I want him shut down because I don't like it. And here's the problem with that. If you begin to think about that, that's that's really one of the, the, the tendencies of a socialistic nation or country is that you limit what can be said because people are offended by it. We see this in entertainment with comedians, politicians. All of this is going, even pastors, as far as a group uh, of the left that are saying, no, if you say something, then we're going to do our best to ruin you, not just not just to destroy you in a way that impacts you, but they want to literally destroy your way of earning, your vocation, anything that's connected with that. And I think that's, that is an incredibly dangerous place to be, even the, even in France, where you're seeing this uh, presidential d- debate going on, even both of these candidates are saying, look, we don't want that woke ideology in our country because it's damaging to the people ultimately to produce the best result. Uh, we are seeing it, and it continues to expand. Uh, and I hope that uh, we have enough Americans willing to push back and fight back on this issue. You know, it's incredible to me to see young folks idealize socialism or communism. And you need only look to what's going on in Russia today or China today to understand that, you know, this is giving for some of these young people, it's giving over complete control to a government authority who is going to enforce their will, they think. But, you know, Putin is not enforcing the will of the Russian people right now. He is enforcing his will on the Russian people. And if you dare disagree with them, you're liable to get, you know, dragged off to a gulag somewhere. In China, the same thing. So you've got this uh, romanticized version of socialism and con- communism that people are portraying out there. And then when you look at the real thing, it's just not at all like that. But this is the slippery slope of the cancel culture and free speech and a move towards socialism or communism that just terrifies me. It's the antithesis of what. Uh, was going on 200-something years ago. You think about it, 1787, you've got these delegates that are assembled in Philadelphia trying to come up with some kind of governing document. And they're looking at all these documents all over the world uh, as they begin to design the Constitution. And what it produced was the longest-lasting republic in the history of the world. You think of the the the, the benefits the rest from for the rest of the world. America's an exceptional nation. We're always the first in philan- uh, philanthropic work. Uh, we've got 25% more foreign-born citizens than any country in the world, and we celebrate it. We've taken a a million legal immigrants that come the right way, that raise their their right hand and become as American as you and I. But but we have to be a sovereign nation, and that means making sure that people have the liberty to exercise their rights, to be able to limit what's going on at the southern border, to be able to understand. I've been in six different Eastern European countries, been in 22 the last six or seven years, and if you've ever lived through that socialism oppression, you have a completely different perspective. If you ever meet somebody or talk to somebody, 
than what's being taught or what's being indoctrinated into our university or even public school system right now, that you can soften this up or, I love your word, romanticize it, because the whole thing was, in America, the power or the checks and balances would come from we the people, not from your elected officials. Any great movement that ever landed in this country didn't come out of Raleigh or Washington, D.C., it came from either people or the church or God's people coming together to abolish slavery, whatever, the Great Awakenings, all these different things that, that were great movements. The people had the freedom and the liberty to create this and make the government follow as opposed to vice versa. Absolutely. You know, and Tide, you know, obviously you've got the First Amendment, which you're, you're covering free speech, but freedom of the press out there as well. And it's interesting now the role the press is playing in trying to limit free speech or to not even, in some cases, not even bother to fact check and just push a narrative out there. So it's like, what's the punchline that we want to run and then back into it with more opinion? And that's, you know, that's been a a topic with the Ben Shapiro, uh, with our local indie paper trying to to get that canceled. Yeah, they, they they were very intentional in trying to shut him down because they ran off a bunch of names. He's this, he's that, so therefore he shouldn't be allowed to speak. But if you look at this even on a larger context, Marty, you're exactly right. Take for the Hunter Biden laptop situation. The the press, even big big social media and big tech, censored people who said, hey, Hunter Biden is doing this and his dad's involved here. And now we're finding out two years later this that it was exactly what we thought it was. This guy was corrupt, working out deals based on relationship that his, that his father had. We're just now beginning to peel back the layers. But it was the press who shut it down, who said there's nothing to see here, who wouldn't report it right in the middle of a presidential campaign. That's why they have so much power. And President Trump was so right to call these guys out for the, for the fake news artists that they are, because if they would have done their job, the, 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 a lot of people believe, and I'm, and I'm one of them, that Joe Biden never, may have never seen the White House uh, and get elected because people needed to know that. But press right now is not doing their job, and even some of the big social media platforms are willing to go and really push back on that First Amendment that we have. You know, and that's why I, I decided to do this podcast. I'm looking to do more um, YouTube as well tied into it because I've been telling people when I talk to the media, and I'm, I'm always available. If, if the media call and they want to talk about something or ask me why I made a certain decision or a deal I'm doing, I'll always volunteer to talk to them about it because I'm a public figure and I can right. I can say what I'm doing, I don't have a nefarious reason to hide something. But, you know, the podcast format allows us to talk directly to the listeners and not have the filter or the lens of the press that we have to go through to get to them. And that, you know, that's also like when the people choose you in a grassroots effort, they're not going through the lens of traditional layers of political uh, hierarchy out there or, uh, moneyed organizations, they're choosing you directly. And I think this this speaking directly to the people or representing directly the people is is important for us to, to have. Oh, I, Marty, I think it's crucial, and I'm glad that you're doing this. And as I said earlier, Mavericks, I think, is the, is the perfect name for this because what we've seen, and I've even done interviews, and one of the reasons I like to do live TV interviews is because they can't edit it, right? Because uh, you can do a 20-minute interview, and 
they take 45 seconds or a minute of it and make it even sometimes sound like it's completely different. So for people to educate themselves, I think podcasts and things like uh, this environment are very important for people to, get, as the saying say, uh, hear it straight from the horse's mouth. That's what's needed. And I think there's a movement in this country that we're seeing that we've lost trust in what used to be a very highly trusted, and that was the press, the Walter Cronkites and so of the world. That doesn't exist anymore because everybody has a spin. So being able to hear directly from people in this environment, I think, is crucial for getting out the truth. Absolutely. You know, and going back to the your Walker's uh, Rangers back in the day, the grassroots effort out there, these were people that really took the time to get to know you. They genuinely believed in you, and they were repeating things. They weren't a call center just picking up the phone and reading a script. These were people that were you know, out there genuinely connecting and, and telling your story, and you were telling your story directly as well. So what, what, how would you differentiate your campaign right now versus the other uh, campaigns? Well, it's, it's more challenging. You're looking at each member of Congress represents 750,000 people. And as your state grows, you, you lose one from another area. In fact, North Carolina saw this and going from 13 members of Congress to 14. Now representing 750,000 people versus 10 million sometimes can be can be quite challenging as you uh, as you try to build a statewide uh, base. Uh, you look for county coordinators. You look for people who are willing to support and endorse. It's a little bit more complicated. And then the other aspect is, you know, it does take a lot of money to run a statewide campaign. And look, I'm not running from this. I'm not someone who comes from a great deal of personal wealth. So we have to we have to build the infrastructure from an it, almost an administrative grassroots type mentality these people are willing to engage and get a chance to hear you, to, to visit with you. And I think going back to what we talked about earlier in the debates and, and things like that, that that is very important for people to be able to see the contrast of how somebody represents themselves on that stage, that environment, but also to be able to talk about the record. So, so our goal is this, is can we over the next five weeks uh, or six weeks, however long, I think it's about five weeks now, build the name ID and get it up to where it is in, in the triad area. So in central North Carolina, we're, we're doing very well, but how can we get that name ID? And, and we, we, we've got a plan to do that and I won't bore your listeners to, to, to get into the weeds of it, but that's the biggest challenge. If you're running statewide, how do you build that name ID where people know who you are and what you believe and stand for as you move forward? Absolutely. Now, one of the things I think you would have as a, a real advantage is your faith and your ability to walk in and uh, genuinely express your Christian faith and talk with uh, a whole congregation and 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 be able to um, you're not selling an idea you're not pretending to be a, a Christian when you do that you're and not saying that the other candidates are sure. anyway yeah. That, yeah at all but more yours is a um, an obvious genuine connection and i would think that would be something that differentiates you from a lot of other people in dc just in general well listen marty i'm certainly no saint i'm i'm just sinner saved by grace like anybody else my faith is very important to me and uh, i think sometimes and i w- and i've said this so I'll, I'll repeat it here people sometimes wonder why we send conservatives to washington dc and within a couple of years are like wait a second what i don't recognize the person i i think if you're grounded in your faith 
even beyond your political positions and understanding that a lot of this battle that we're facing is, is spiritual as much as it is political. I think that does give you the right or healthy perspective in looking at this. And, and we do have opportunities to go and speak. Now, when I go and speak at a church on a Sunday morning, I don't, I don't even wear my congressional pen. I don't roll up in the campaign bus. I don't pass out materials necessarily or in all the different things that we're, we're looking at. It's a biblical message. It talks about how we should be involved and engage. And, and if you look back, uh, even at our early founding days, there were ministers and pastors who were also uh, colony leaders or even governors early on that were unafraid to talk about why it's important that we have religious freedom. Uh, that's that's the basis of this country that was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. There are scripture verses etched in stone and marble all the throughout D.C., and it's not something that I'm going to put somebody in a headlock and 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 uh, you know start patting on their head. But it is very important to me, and I don't separate my faith from who I am. Now, obviously, my my allegiance and oath is to the Constitution. We want to make sure that we're protecting everybody's rights, whatever community or background or group that you're participating. But at the same time, I fully appreciate the fact that this country was built on those principles, the very moral foundation of, of uh, thou shalt not kill, thou shouldn't steal. All these different things were built out of that history, and it's something that I will choose and continue to fight if given the opportunity to protect. You know, there's a uh, there's that neat uh, ride in the Museum of the Bible in D.C. that kind of takes you around and shows you all the different places where references to the Bible are included in monuments yes. or documents or artwork. And it's, you know, it's refreshing to see that. And it's also depressing sometimes to think about how People are talking about trying to remove all of that uh, from government, and yeah. and I, you know, I I definitely respect other faiths out there, and uh, don't want to uh, force my will on them. But I, I I'm an unapologetic uh, Christian, and so I, I'm not going to be apologizing for being a Christian. And I think that's where we kind of find ourselves these days. And and there's a it seems like there's a effort in D.C. and in a lot of times in local government to strip out faith out of uh, government. And, you know, when we talk about separation of church and state, that you know, that, that's a different thing when you're talking about the Pope and the papal armies and, sure. and kingmaking and things like that versus it doesn't mean there should be an absence of faith in our lives. I think that's a, a terrible mistake if we we wind up going down that path. No question. If you look at our early primers, the textbooks, even they taught the small children to read, uh, it was the book of Psalms or Proverbs. This is part of our history and who we are. And listen, as a, as a person of faith and, and a follower of Jesus Christ, I think that's been a huge fabric of our country. And whether you want to look at it from your a daily walk as a Christian, or if you just want to look at it from a historical aspect of it, uh, it's interesting in times of crisis, this country has always come together in prayer, whether it was in our world wars after 9-11, uh, that was, that's been part of our fabric. And for people to try to intentionally attack it or target it uh, is something that I know, and not just me, have a lot of problems with that, that people want to erase this. Uh, what are you going to do? You're going to go sandblast the verses that are etched in marble in Washington D.C. and all the different places there. This, look, I'm not saying that every sign of the Declaration of Independence, all 56 of them, were born again Christians, 
But there was a healthy respect for our creator, for an almighty God that was based in the Judeo-Christian principles that are woven all through our documents. Uh, And I think getting away from those, you can track it historically when we banned prayer in the public schools, when we took God out of the classroom, when we got away from these two founding things that were part of it from the Bible and the Constitution, I think you can make a case that we began to have the family breaking down in our culture and government stepping in in a way, in a role that it was never intended. You know, and and now we're starting to see a lot of that creep over into the, or we've seen it over years, creep over into the education systems, whether it's K through 12 or, you know, I serve on the, or have served on the UNC System Board of Governors, and now I'm serving on the Chapel Hill Board of Trustees. But I see this, it's hard to separate. When you get a maybe a teacher with a certain mindset, it's hard for them not to bring that mindset into the classroom. And when you look at the demographics of the teachers, and let's say it's 90% Democrats, then they're going to tend to bring those into the classroom as well. And I think that that's, you've also got these uh, teacher unions organizing and a, a lot of, self-dealing. So when people are, you know, doing this, it's not just because they want a certain ideology, even it's that they want more money for their particular organization. And in the UNC system, the number of six figure jobs floating around for administrators is pretty significant. You've lived in that world. You've seen it firsthand. You know, I like to always say that uh, government is most effective, the more localized you can make it. And that's nothing, none, it's none more true than it is in the education arena. One of the pieces of legislation that I did not get passed, I got it to the floor for a vote, got 191 votes, I needed 218 to pass it on to the Senate, was something that we call the A-plus Act. Now, what the A-plus Act does, it doesn't strip any of the federal funding, but it, but it does restrict from any federal bureaucracy having any say-so in how our children are educated. In other words, uh, getting that ability to only be designed from your state or local school board level, this is what this whole uh, election, if you look back in Virginia, when Terry McAuliffe actually said out loud what a lot of them thought, a lot of them think, I should say present tense, was that parents have no say-so in their way their children are being educated. That's, that's offensive to people. And even today you're seeing this report out of New Jersey where six-year-olds are taught, look, just because you're born with these parts – you can question it. You can you can push back on that. And 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 look, if you have to have that conversation, I don't want some dude having that conversation with my six year old daughter. That, that I have a major problem with that. Uh, are there times and places for that discussion? Yes, but when you give that power over to the education system, when there's already strong evidence, in fact, you can prove it that most of it is driven by teachers union who are designed to try to kind of create. Uh, arenas where they're getting more and more money and at the same time teaching a leftist woke ideology. I think that's why that the, that the basis that we're seeing and the trend is to vote a lot of these folks out of Congress this year is because families and parents and people have had simply had enough of the overreaching arm of the federal government going all the way into the classroom and saying, no, we'll be the ones that teach your children what we want them to know. And I think a lot of Americans have had enough of it. You know, I think some of this also has come about because parents have had a chance to observe uh, their students participating via Zoom and yes. and and really see more of what's happening in the classroom. And 
it was eye-opening uh, for a, a lot of them. And then we've had, you know, people out there really advocating for uh, things like CRT. Yes. And, you know, obviously it was a big, uh, big issue uh, last year with the Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, tenure. I was not on the board at that time. Uh, they voted the day before the new board came in and, and full disclosure, I'm opposed to all tenure. I don't, I don't feel sure. like uh, teachers should have uh, a lifetime gig. Most of us have to show that each year we're able to produce. And so right. I'm not, not a fan of uh, tenure for anyone. I, I don't have a lifetime appointment. Most of um, us don't. Yeah, right? exactly. You don't show up for work or don't do something that usually is their consequences. Yeah. But you know, that was, there was a lot of discussion. There was a lot of discussion around CRT with that. There was also a lot of discussion around uh, journalistic integrity. And what does that mean? And uh, the donor, uh, Mr. Hussman, who was very generous and gave a big gift to the journalism school, was critical of Nicole Hannah-Jones. And he had, he had these uh, ideals that he wanted conveyed through the journalism school and actually put on the wall but a large part of that was being impartial. And I know that's very difficult, uh, especially these days, to see impartiality in journalism. But fact-checking, doing your research, you know, getting quotes, double-checking, getting the other side's comments, and not uh, something just pushed out with a very clear objective. And so, you know, I, I respect that. You know, I, I think... You know, there were some stumbles along the way as part of that process, obviously, and it could have been handled a lot better in a lot of different ways. But journalistic integrity or fact-checking or, or more being a little bit more impartial is, uh, is somewhere I'd love to see us go back to so that people can trust the media. Because right now, you know, I've had plenty of articles written about me. I'm sure you have you where you read it and go, wow, this really is fake news. Uh, it's not at all uh, what happened. Yeah. It's like, Hey, I would never vote for that guy. And you're like, wait, that's, that's me. They're talking about. So yeah. no, you, you, you do see that sometimes. And Marty, I, th I think the only way to get back to that is to be able to tie in federal funding uh, or, or restrict federal funding and allow the people in the local communities to make those calls. Uh, because whether it's critical race theory, a lot of this stuff that, that when the, when the federal funding comes in, there's always a catch to it, whether it was common core, critical race theory. These are the kinds of things that parents are trying to battle back. And to the point you touched on earlier, one of the things that came out of COVID is that moms and dads saw and heard the first time of what their children were being actually taught in the classroom. And they're like, wait a second, what does that have to do with reading, writing, and arithmetic? Uh, and we're, we're seeing more and more of that. Uh, where it's more of a social education than it is the the very principles of getting a solid education to compete, not just in the workforce, but even internationally. And this dumbing down that we have seen and uh, that we've seen really implemented in the public education arena, I think that's one of the reasons that moms and dads have continued to pull their children out of some of these places because they're touched on this earlier, there's no accountability there. Uh, and that's, that's something that I think at the state level, which is where 90% of your funding comes from the state level, these guys have really kind of continued to draw a conduit or almost a rubber neck where there's a filter of only putting the best out there because of our children's education and the importance of that future. You know, and I think we're going to see a lot more deliberate choices in education, whether that's uh, charter schools that align with someone's interest 
or universities that do. You know, you look um, just north up to Lynchburg at uh, Liberty. And while they've had their share of struggles uh, recently, the concept of it was a neat concept, which was to provide Christians another alternative uh, out there, both in person and online, and know that that sort of uh, messaging was going to be available for them. And Ben Shapiro actually is... Uh, dedicating some funds uh, recently to children's uh, television programming so that they could have content where you, you've you got just a return to wholesome, sure. you know. I, I think that's one of the things, too, is our kids are, are dealing with issues that they normally wouldn't have to when they're six or even when they're in college. I think we're we're pushing a lot of ideas down on them at an early age where they haven't quite had a chance to even learn about just normal kid stuff and relaxing stuff and, or even in college a little bit more, you know, basic getting into core curriculum and then going out from there. It's a lot more very uh, divisive uh, topics. I mean, what six year old needs to be having a conversation about gender dysphoria? I mean, are you serious uh, and that's what uh, the teachers unions and others are okay now green lighting and 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 we're seeing this slew of mental health issues and all the stress. Let let them, let them go out and be a kid. Let them, you know, teach them the basic fundamentals of reading, making sure they're phonetically they can they can read well or they're understanding that two plus two actually equals four. The, if you want to have that conversation, and I would even debate that at some point later. Uh, fine, I guess, but but from those early stages to be able to add that additional burden of even trying to figure out those things. It is, I think it's insane. I think it's intentional, uh, but I think it's very damaging to our culture. Yeah, I think there are an awful lot of things that parents would like to discuss with their kids on their own first or, or even privately and not have the kids have to deal with something in a public context because, you know, sometimes these discussions may make other kids uh, uncomfortable as well. And so, you know, there's this move towards, you know, uh, not having these private conversations, having them out in public, and somehow that's better. And maybe it is sometimes, but I think other times it's you're, you're thinking of one person and not the whole group mm-hmm. and the benefit to the group. And so, you know, there has to be a, a way to accommodate both. Kind of like if you have a, in a, uh, in a facility, you can have a bathroom that is, non-gender uh, specific, you know, that, that you can have for maybe a one stall that's a family bathroom or something out there that can afford someone privacy without necessarily having to get into other parts of it. And I'm not necessarily against some of the efforts out there sure. um, to make restrooms more accessible and make sure people are comfortable out there. But I, I think there are other ways to kind of make everybody happy as well by doing something a little bit more difficult perhaps building an extra room or having a, a, a special counselor for different issues or something to, to provide where it doesn't have to be just all or one, you know, one way or the other. I'm not opposed to trying to be creative and, and with different people and where they are in life. And as I said, the constitution protects all those rights and that, and that's something that's very important. But when you get to the place where you tell first or second grade class that uh, there's no prayer in the classroom, but just because you have those parts, you're, you're, it's okay to question 
all your sexuality, having that conversation at six or seven, I think is preposterous. Uh, and I think that's that parents have every right to be upset with that, to be out protesting. Uh, and we've saw this last two years where you've got your three and four year olds. People are pushing masks when there's no science or evidence to say there's anything that's going to help not get sick when you're wearing a cloth mask. In fact, even for adults, I wouldn't, I'm not a biologist, so I or a scientist, so I get into all of that. But uh, but it doesn't take you very long to realize that some of this is politically motivated. Yeah, you know, I remember when my son was at at school and he was it's probably like maybe six or seven, and they were doing a uh, some music for the school, and they were going to sing the song Hallelujah, which sounds really nice until you listen to the lyrics and you know all the different verses in there and it's it's very sexual in parts of it and and i'm not a prude and you know i don't you know i'm fine with the song and you know anything else anybody wants to play and i listen to all variety of music but for my six or seven year old i didn't feel like that was appropriate and so it was one of the few times where i spoke up and said Hey, you know, is this age appropriate? And I think that's some of this issue too, is it's not, I'm not wanting to limit content. I'm not a a book banner or anything like that. You know, the whole back of my artist loft is a a nod to Fahrenheit 451. So, you know, I, I don't ever believe in banning items out there, but I do think there's certain levels where you say, this is not age appropriate, um, you're not immediately launching this into certain things until kids can really understand what's going on. Yeah. Adults do, do what you want to. Uh, it, 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 that's the basis of, uh, of liberty that we have enjoyed and appreciate America. If you want to go do stupid stuff, you have every right to go do stupid stuff unless it impacts other people, their families, children. Exactly. Uh, but, but the great thing that we celebrate in that personal freedom in America is you can believe, do, and say whatever the heck you want to do and say. But if it begins to infringe on somebody else's rights or that family's rights, then I think that's where you have some room to push back. But I agree with you. Whatever books and music, as you, you do what you live your life the way you want to with who you want to. Now, I may have some differences on the faith aspect of what I think is best or most appropriate, but, but in America, you have the right to do and live accordingly uh, the way that you want to do things. And I think that's the great thing that's always been about America. Uh, look, look, you want to behave stupid, you go do it. Uh, just, don't, just don't bring it in my lanes. Absolutely. You know, I had a, a big debate one time with Dr. Bell Whelan with uh, Sachs uh, COC, which is the accrediting body for uh, most of the school's in this area. And so for, for the universities and she brought up an example where she was talking about freedom in the classroom for the teacher to have control over the syllabus. And she brought up an example that really bothered me. She said, one of the teachers had told people to write uh, the word God or Jesus on a, on a piece of paper and then put it on the ground and step on it. And she was describing that as academic freedom. And I, I raised my hand. I said, I'm sorry, but you know, I, I feel that's religious persecution. You know, you can't imagine if, if someone had, you know, write the Quran and then put it on the ground and step on it, that, that would not be allowed. No, it wouldn't. Um, 
but it goes back to, you know, we've talked about uh, China before too, when they used to kind of identify Christians by having them desecrate a Bible or a, a cross and uh, use that to find them and then persecute them. And, you know, and I feel like we're, we're seeing some of that these days in, in, in our education systems where people are kind of identifying these. And it's not like, it's not that obvious, but it's more subtle, subtle and trying to mold them in their own ideology, which may be an atheist. Um, well, to to back up your point, Marty, that you're that you're making, well, uh, if you in the six years that I served in the U.S. House, this I found something very interesting. So, Democratic members of Congress on the on the, on the Democrat the left side, the ones that are about my age or older, I'm fifty two, be fifty three in May, fifty to fifty five years old and older. They know how the game is played. You know, they may not vote the same way. And, but the younger group, this next crop coming up, it's their religion now. They they hate what America stands for. They hate when you talk about Judeo-Christian principles. They hate the fact you talk about prayer in schools or whatever it might be because it's the only diet that they've ever had in the education, in the arts and entertainment, uh, in the political arena. And to your point, you're exactly right. That's, that's where... We are headed if we don't curve back some of what we've seen when it comes to this generational indoctrination that if you believe in these set of Christian values, then you're ostracized. But but for many of these, the AOCs, and I've served with these guys in Congress, the reason they're so passionate about is because they truly believe and have been taught that America is inherently evil. It's inherently racist. And all these bad qualities they believe in, it's their job to completely uh, create a new system. That's where the whole socialism argument to get away from these Judeo-Christian principles, to get away from the the, the great things that this country has been, has done. Look, I'm not saying that we got it all right, uh, even talking about uh, all men are created equal day one, but the great thing about this nation is that we never quit trying until we did get it right. We celebrate that. We don't condemn it. Any atrocities always we point out. But we can celebrate that America has continued to fight the fight for equality for all, and that's the one of the great components that has made this country great. You can't find this is the land of opportunity for more individuals, no matter your background, than any other country that's ever existed. Let's celebrate it for a while. You know, and it's amazing to me to see these Antifa types or anarchist types out there really just hating on America. It's destructive because you have to look at what's the ultimate motivation here. And the ultimate motivation is about control. If I can get you to believe that you have to be dependent on me to accomplish anything in life, then I, I'm, I'm holding all the marbles. I'm in control. You know, I'm, I'm the only Republican in North Carolina at any elected position, as well as in the U.S. House to this day, that has uh, spoken at the, given the commencement at a, at a uh, at a HBCU, Historical Black College University, or also the only one that's won the United Negro College President's List Award. And what I try to communicate, hopefully with full authenticity and going back to our faith, is that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, God knew you when you were in your mother's womb, which means he's got a specific purpose and plan for your life that has nothing to do 
with some ceiling the federal government wants to put on you. And this whole mindset of creating dependency or victimization, that doesn't help individuals. It literally stymies their growth when you tell somebody that without me, this is this is as far as you can go in life. And you get people to believing that, you're literally oppressing the mindset to go out and be creative, to be artists, to be uh, free market people, to get out there and be entrepreneurial. And that's the problem that we're seeing in the 21st century is this move to have more control in your bureaucratic governments where the state and specifically, especially I should say at the D.C. level, you're literally damaging people's growth. You're not enhancing it. You're not helping somebody when you create that mindset that, hey, without me giving you a certain amount of money, then you'll never be able to go out there and accomplish something. I think it's one of the most destructive things that have that has damaged the fabric of our country for the last half century. And I think they also, you know, when people create a high level of taxes, sometimes that's because they want this big pot of money that they then have control over and how to spend to use how they see fit and not necessarily for um, the public. You, you need only look to the Russian oligarchs or the elites in China, and you see that this isn't necessarily serving the the people. It's serving an elite few that just kind of get there through this strong uh, state control of uh, of the of the markets as well as uh, the press and of the military and just kind of this. And, and that's what I, you know, we keep coming back to this idea of, you know, mavericks, independent thinkers versus people that want to hand over control to someone. And I always tell someone, picture handing control over to your worst enemy. Mm-hmm. Th- those should be the only freedoms you're willing to give up because if you give up, a freedom, you put a leash on yourself and hand it to somebody that's going to, you know, drag you behind the car is it it just boggles my mind that so many young folks are believing in this uh, romanticized system and this uh, benevolent government that's going to look after them. And I I just can't get my mind around it. Well, if it's the only thing that you're taught from the time you're age two or three years old, you don't know uh, any other capacity. And that's why we have to continue to stand up and do our best to make sure that everybody hears our message of individualism, hope, and prosperity. Now, Mark, so going back to the primary, sure. uh, which is a very short while away, Weeks away, can you talk about when voters are considering why to vote for you versus one of the other candidates, What's the daylight between y'all? We talked about, you know, you're you're unafraid to get out there and debate and speak your mind. You're also not beholden to uh, various financial interests. You're also not uh, someone that's come up through the political uh, ranks over the years. And we talked about your uh, strong faith. So those are maybe four points. Yeah. I could clearly see what are some other uh, points of differentiation. I think if you look at the record, that's the biggest contrast. Uh, And I'll I'll be poignant here. If you look at Mr. Bud's record and my record, he's in his sixth year. I had six years. If you were to ask him to name one thing that he's accomplished, in fact, I I heard uh, an interview, he can't name a single thing. 
And if you look at our record, uh, it, we, we were the first freshman in history to chair the largest caucus in Congress, formerly chaired by Vice President Pence and Jim Jordan. With that, we repealed Obamacare. We defunded Planned Parenthood. We're the last member to get a balanced budget amendment literally on the House floor. I had to negotiate that with Speaker Ryan, but I got it to the floor for a vote. We're the ranking member on intelligence and counterterrorism. Finished our last two years when it came to that the Homeland Committee, uh, Security Committee subcommittee. Uh, we were the first member in the 114th class to pass legislation. I, I can go on and on. If you're looking at somebody that has no track record versus somebody who does, and you're thinking about going to the U.S. Senate, to me, there sh- I would think there'd be a common sense uh, mechanism that would say, let's get behind the guy that not only uh, talks the game, but also has walked the walk to be able to accomplish stuff. And at the same time, even though I'm rated the number one America first conservative in this race, I wanted to make sure that I was able to build bridges into all of our communities. And frankly, there's no other candidate, I think, or politician in the state who can look at their track record and say, yes, that person has led the conservative battle in the forefront, but still found a way to go into places. There are three or four HBCUs that this very day that I could call the chancellor and swing by and talk about issues. I, I, uh, I think it stems from this, and I'll wrap it up real quick here, is in my second term, I had the idea to invite all 101 chancellors of HBCUs throughout the country in D.C. This was wrapping up Obama's time. He's been there almost eight years, and, and he had never invited them. And, they, and I was told, they won't come because you're Republican. I said, well, I'm going to invite them anyway. 87 of the 101 showed up, and it began to forge a relationship of how can we work together to meet the needs of all of our communities. To me, that's the kind of leadership that you want serving in the U.S. Senate, somebody who actually has a track record as opposed to just someone who's pushed the button, they're told, because they belong to this caucus or that group. And I think that that in coming full circle, that's the independent or the maverick mindset that you want when it comes to putting the interest of the people first as opposed to these different groups or interest groups that you have in D.C., Exactly. You know, and for people that don't know, HBCU is a historically black, black college or university. Right. And uh, the best one in, <laughs> yes. is uh, North Carolina A&T yes. here in Greensboro and uh, was a, uh, is a significant economic driver. Does, uh, for people that don't realize it, it is a world-class engineering university. Uh, it does an awful lot of work with national programs like uh, the Department of Defense, uh, National Institute of Health, and others looking to solve problems and uh, fix solutions like uh, they developed, and this is an interesting tie-in to uh, Kelly, they developed a polymer for helicopter blades that is uh, extremely light and, you know, little interesting technologies like that that make a huge difference for our military and for the, the uh, country as a whole. Yeah, and, and if you look at Chancellor uh, Harold Martin, this is a guy that's respected across the board uh, and has really done a great job, did a great job at Winston-Salem State University, and now I think he's been there 11 or 12 years at North Carolina A&T. And I tell you what, I think he's, he's one of our treasures here in North Carolina for the great work that he's done. Absolutely. You know, Mark, another thing that I've noted when you're talking about accomplishments, a lot of people say I, and you, you are nice enough to always say we referring to your whole team. 
And I think that just shows another point of difference. A lot of people are always saying, I did this, I did that. And you're, you're giving credit to your whole uh, group. I get in trouble because of that sometimes that, that, that people say, well, do you have a mouse in your pocket or whatever? And, uh, and, and I, but, but I think to your point, my team, if you will, I always look like we're working together to accomplish something here. And, and, uh, and I don't think you really accomplish anything in life without people going before you or people partnering with you. And I'm very grateful. I felt like I had the best staff in all of Washington, D.C., and I didn't even realize it till we kind of got into the process. But these are great people who help on a consistent daily basis. So, yeah, when, 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 when I'm looking at something, I truly believe that we're accomplishing this as a team rather than just one individual. Now, you're, you're out here really doing this without big money behind you uh, from the special interest groups. You're doing it without um, the uh, the uh, former President Trump's endorsement out there, though he has praised you in the past. Sure. Last Saturday when he had a rally, it seems like he's almost picking his team that each have a role and they're kind of supporting each other. It feels like almost like an agency of sorts where it's this coordinated effort out there. I know it's a touchy subject, but, you know, could you speak to that and, and maybe even speak to, you know, some of the people that have been in your corner in the past and been very supportive, but have felt pressure uh, from yeah. that kind of uh, team. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah. I, I, team slate. I enjoyed working with President Trump and a lot of the policy that accomplished. And in fact, I remember getting a phone call for him uh, on multiple occasions, uh, talking about the good work we did together and and how he would be supportive and whatever we, whatever entity that we looked going into. Uh, but sometimes, if you're going to be a maverick, that means you do have to draw lines in the sand. Uh, that that I don't believe this country has ever been been built around one individual. It's been about the principles that we've talked, uh, hopefully articulated today, these Judeo-Christian principle values. That That's where my ultimate allegiance is. And it's sometimes where it was big spending bills or other things that we were going to vote the way that we thought best. And specifically, one of the issues where it came down to was I was the only member of Congress to endorse, endorse a certain candidate that Mark Meadows and President Trump went against them, uh, not intentionally. I endorsed my candidate before I think they did, uh, specifically President Trump. But uh, my candidate ended up winning two to one. But sometimes you have to do what you believe is right. And I wouldn't change that because I'm ultimately uh, accountable, ultimately to the, to the Lord, to my faith, uh, to my family, uh, and to the way that I serve. And sometimes if you don't tow the company line and you are a maverick, uh, it's going to cost you at times. Uh, but ultimately, looking back, I don't want to be someone who says, well, you know, uh, my life calling was just to make an argument and to make a difference and not make a difference. Uh, I think if you look at each decision specific in the political arena as that your calling is to make a difference, I think sometimes you're going to have to hold the line. Is it easy? No. In fact, uh, we'll get into, the, I guess, all the details, but even as late as last week, I was offered a deal to step down from the race all I had to do was go on the stage and endorse Mr. Bud as the best candidate. If so, I would be heaped praise. I would have kind of a path forward politically and some of that. And I just said, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Uh, to go out there and tell the people, many of them who have worked hard and trusted me to do the right thing for six years in the U.S. House, I'm not going to go out there and say something that I don't believe in my heart. 
And maybe that's the where politics are. And I, I know that sometimes the swamp is as deep on the Republican side or many times as it is the Democrat side. I'm not going to play those games. I didn't in D.C. and I'm not going to do it now. But there is great pressure uh, to conform. And when there's a trend going a certain way, you want to get on that bandwagon and because of the political payback. And uh, and I just chose not to do that. I'm not trying to sound puritanical or Pollyannish and uh, even my friend, uh, Mr. Robinson, who's been very supportive of us and had said good things, uh, uh, even recently, I think four or five weeks ago, in an event said that uh, that I was the only one willing to stand up for him and with him. And now, uh, you know, kind of see him get maybe talked into supporting another candidate. Is it disappointing? Yes. But does it deter me from doing what I believe is right? Not in the least bit, because that's how you sleep well at night. You do what you believe is best, and even when it's not politically expedient or convenient, uh, you know that you can look back and hopefully even look forward, knowing that that's one of the reasons that you believe you're the best candidate to represent all the people of North Carolina. You know, I think that's what I really appreciate you about you, Mark, because I, I feel the same way when I'm out there. And, you know, there have been a whole lot of votes. There were votes on the Board of Governors that were 31 to 1 out there, some other ones out there where I, you know, I'm on the losing side of a lot of votes, but that's because I'm, I just want to walk out at the end of the day with a clear conscience and know that I have done what I think is right. And I did the only times I've looked back and really regret a decision is when I have bowed to pressure Sure, and someone has pressured me and I've gone along with it. I'm like, God, I really, I didn't want to do that, but I did. And that's when I look back and have regrets. I never look back and say, if I voted my conscience, not that I want to be a contrarian, but just I want to know that it's something that I truly believe in and not something that I'm forced to do or doing just to get a financial benefit or a win. Right. No, that's so well articulated. Sometimes the system is designed for you to simply look the other way. And, uh, and that's, that's what, I can't make you a maverick, right? Is not that you're just, as you said, to be contrarian or not that you're trying to be a thorn in the flesh, but it's like, guys, is this really the the best path forward? Or should we consider this option? Or should we add this or take away or not do this at all? And that's, if you look at throughout our history, it is the mavericks who made history. It's the ones not just trying to buck the system, but just to say, you know what? We're not, we don't have to be conformist here. Uh, that, and that's really uh, not that you do it just because of that reason, but it takes courage to stand up and say, no, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to accept that deal. And because there's usually a price to pay if you don't, uh, whether you're trying to be blackballed or whether they're trying to squeeze you out of this entity or that entity. But ultimately, I think and I'm convinced and I have seen it in my own life that if you're willing to stand up, not from a prideful standpoint, but willing to stand up because you truly believe there's a better way many times, if not nearly all of them in my life, it's turned out to be pretty good later on. I agree. You know, people are fearful there. There's always this idea of safety in numbers of uh, sticking with this group just because you won't be attacked. You know, there's, there's safety out there, but you know, people have to find their own voice. They have to, do their own research. They have to stick to their beliefs. And I think that's an important message for voters out there too, is not to be pressured 
to think, okay, I'm voting for the winner or the loser or wherever. Vote your conscience yes. and go in and say, okay, I'm going to vote for, and, and whichever candidate out there in any race yes. out there, if they believe in the candidate, vote for that candidate. They can be bold. They can find this independent maverick path as well. It's, it's actually liberating, Marty, when you're willing to take that step of faith or courage to get out there and say, you know what, uh, I know in my heart this isn't the best way or I know in my heart that this isn't right. And even though it may uh, cost me a little bit temporarily or sometimes even a little bit longer, uh, the, the, the freedom that you have in being willing to stand up uh, against the wave of popular opinion at times. And look, there have been times where I've had some say, you know what, uh, that was a better way or this was a better way. But I, I feel like that if we had more people willing to engage the process to do what they believed in their heart was right, we could go a long way in fixing some of the problems that in our system today. So for people that want to uh, support you, obviously the best way they can do that is vote on May 17th uh, in the primary and in the general election. They can put up uh, yard signs. They can put up stickers. They can post on social media. How is the best way for them to, or if you've got people out there wanting to help, of course, financial contributions would be great too. How can people help you if they believe in your messaging? You know, we really, it's, and it's crazy. Our consultants get aggravated. We don't really ask for people's money. We want, we want to earn their trust. And I want, my one request is for people to do their homework, to take a look at this, to be informed. Uh, they can follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Rep, R-E-P, Mark Walker. And they can always look at our website, Walker, the number 4NC.com, Walker4NC.com. But, but, but just pay attention. Look past some of the shiny objects because that's usually not the direction that we, we, that we should or would want to go. If people will do their homework, I have complete confidence that we will stand uh, that kind of test to be able to come out uh, first in this process. And, and we're, we're grateful and grateful for, for to you that you've launched this Maverick uh, podcast program because it really gets past just a two or three soundbite, but really gets to the heart of the issues and how we move forward in resolving some of these issues. Well, thanks, Mark, for coming on here. And I wish you uh, much success in the primary on May 17th and in the general election in the fall. And uh, I'm always happy to spend time chatting with you because I, I learn a lot and, and just, it's always a, a enlightening and encouraging experience. I always walk away feeling more jazzed up too and emboldened to go out and, and, uh, and do things too. Thanks, Marty. Appreciate you being involved and, and the fact that the community makes such a difference for you. I think you're leading by example. Keep up the great work and God bless. Thanks, Mark. Today's episode really gave me a sense of hope for politics. I can get sort of jaded looking at how politics works sometimes and the double speak out there that a lot of politicians have. But in talking to Mark today, he shared a lot of things that people wouldn't normally share that a lot of politicians wouldn't dare say. That's what makes him a maverick, unafraid of one of the most powerful people in the country, pressuring him to do something, and he stands up to that. I don't know too many people that would do that, but Mark Walker would. Hey 
If you're enjoying the podcast, you can subscribe to follow along and hear other episodes. And please give me a review. Please be very candid and share your suggestions. I'm the sort of person that values feedback. So when I ask that, I'm not asking you to give me a glowing review and tell me how wonderful everything is. And tell me what you think. And you can do that in a few ways. You can write a review or you can shoot me an email to marty at mavericks.marty. If you just want to call in and leave a message, you can call me at 41podcasts or 417-632-2787. Or you can email me. The email is marty at mavericks.marty.com. And thanks again for tuning into this podcast and sharing some time with me. I'm looking forward to some of the upcoming conversations that we're going to have. And I look forward to developing more of a relationship with the listeners and hearing your questions. I hope you have a wonderful week.